Welcome to the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast. My name is Dishakarna Jani, and I'm joined today by Ethan Kleinberg, Joan Scott, and Gary Wilder to talk about their theses on theory and history published this past May, entitled Theory Revolt. Professor Kleinberg is professor of history and letters at Wesleyan University and the author of Haunting History for a Deconstructive Approach to the Past and Generation Existential, Martin Heidegger's Philosophy in France, 1927-61. Professor Scott is emerita at the Institute for Advanced Study, and her books include Gender in the Politics of History and Knowledge, Power, and Academic Freedom. Professor Wilder is professor of history, anthropology, and French at the City University of New York and the author of The French Imperial Nation-State, Negritude and Colonial Humanism Between the Two World Wars, and Freedom Time, Negritude, Decolonization, and the Future of the World. They've all taught and written on the relationship between archival history and theory, and they've kindly agreed to sit down today and talk with me about why theory revolt is in order. I guess I'll start by reading the first line of the first thesis, uh, because I think that it lays out the problem um, as as I understood it when I first read the document. And it goes like this. Academic history has never managed to transcend its 18th century origins as an empiricist enterprise. By this, we mean not David Hume's earlier skeptical approach, but the scientistic method intrinsically linked to positivism, which Horkheimer called modern empiricism that was later adopted across the human sciences. Academic history remains dedicated to this method of gathering facts in order to produce interpretations by referring them to supposedly given contexts and organizing them into chronological narratives. So I guess first we can go in the order that I, that I mentioned your names. Could you talk a little bit about why you felt the need to write something like this and what exactly you saw to be amiss? I guess we could start with Professor Kleinberg. What was the problem? Well, I, I suppose uh, I'd begin with um, a bunch of uh, uh, missed attempts or overtures uh, to other historians, to guilds, to members, to try and start a conversation uh, in a way that would bring theory onto the table. And, you know, for, uh, for me, I'm someone who, uh, during my, my formative graduate years, I wasn't really taught theory, but I was part of a cohort uh, that would meet the library at UCLA, and we would read history and theory, or we would read uh, the Frankfurt School. And I found that this was um, uh, incredibly not just uh, liberating, but uh, eye-opening in so many ways to the way I wanted to do history, the way I wanted to think about the past, and, and to different approaches to different problems in the past. Uh, and uh, somehow I felt that this, uh, it was increasing. It wasn't that we were, we were getting better, we were doing more of this. Uh, over the course of my uh, career, I found that it was do- being done less and less in the institutional settings. And so uh, on many occasions, we've tried to organize panels or have discussions Uh, And we would always find them sort of buried at the 8 a.m. session on the first day of a conference or the 5 p.m. session on the last day of the conference or tucked away. And it really was this um, strategy of infinite retreat where there would be open arms and say, of course, we want to talk about this. And of course, we want to do it. uh, But then sort of like Charlie Brown with the football. And at a a certain point, uh, I really felt... uh, not just fed up, but as though something really had to happen, that we really had to uh, have a strong intervention. We needed to start trying to break a window in a kind of Sorellian way. And, and that's uh, something I, I, I shared uh, with Gary and then with Joan. And uh, we decided, well, how are we going to do this? We're going to try and write a manifesto. 
And whether or not we would be able to succeed in writing a manifesto, that was the next step. But that's what we decided we wanted to do. That the time was right to put it out there for as many eyes as possible. So that was that. That's where I'll start. I'll say. <laughs> So you want me next? Yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so just to, to add to that, I think, and and I come from an older generation of from either Gary or, or Ethan, I um, had my theory conversion, as it were, in the in the 1980s, early in 1980-81 at Brown. And um, it was the most exciting time in my career as a scholar, as a, a, a as a historian. And what was troubling me was the extent to which not only was it uh, theory being marginalized, but being actively rejected by so many um, historians. So that graduate students were being told, for example, to um, cut the theoretical um, aspect approaches or the explicit uh, discussions of theory in their theses and in sometimes in, in uh, dissertation committees that I sat on as a, as an outsider, as a third uh, reader. Um, I think what struck me at one point was um, Gabrielle Spiegel's um, presidential address to, at the American Historical Association when she talked about the, she consigned the li linguistic turn and theory to the past as just another of these uh, thematic approaches to the study of history. And I remember thinking, no, <laughs> that's not the issue here. The issue is uh, epistemological um, uh, approaches that we take to, to this material. So I felt that um, we had lost something that had been extremely valuable and exciting at an earlier point, and that was somehow active, not just being marginalized, but actively being rejected by uh, many of the dominant uh, figures in, in the historical profession. Uh, and, you know, a number of people, when we first published this, have said, well, what's new about this? Um, isn't this deja vu? Haven't we already had the theory uh, eruption um, in the historical profession? And our answer to that is yes, but it's gone away. And it's precisely the, the maybe not gone away entirely, but it's the diminishing of uh, the interest in and the attention to serious questions of theory that, that were very troubling to us, and that led us to the, the sense that we we needed uh, a theory revolt. Sure, I'll pick up, I'll, you guys can hear me okay? I'll yes. pick right up on that and say that uh, I was in graduate school at a moment of very productive interdisciplinary dialogue between history and the social sciences, history and anthropology, largely through colonial studies and uh, colonial history. And um, it struck me then and for a while uh, that history, at least European history, the field I knew most about and know most about for uh, generations, decades, not generations, but decades, had been asking questions. When Ethan and I got to graduate school, uh, history was not one of the places uh, where people like Joan and others uh, uh, and many of her predecessors had been asking questions that were pushing scholars across the disciplines to think in new ways. And progressively, 
after this uh, moment of real epistemological opening, not only in history, but across the human sciences, uh, it seemed to me that it seems to me that more and more historians began not only retreating into the old business as usual, as if theoretical self-reflection and epistemological questions were something one could think about for one semester or one season or one book and have settled rather than it being a practice that is always built into what one does and how one thinks always. But increasingly, his, at least modern European history became increasingly scholastic. It seemed like it was more and more a conversation among experts and among specialists, uh, uh, a, a set of position takings within a small field. But less and less did I see scholars and thinkers and intellectuals in other fields rushing to history in order to think about what they were doing or to think about thinking, whether it had, you know, in the ways that it had been with subaltern studies, with gender studies, with, uh, with you know, the Hayden White and the post Hayden White uh, questions about representation. There are many, whether all the way back to Brodell and the Annal School, there are a lot of, you know, the, the, there was a long stretch in the post-war period. That's, you know, in the sense that, you know, that, that that's part of where I'm coming from. But also, I'll just add that, some of us uh, were, as Joan said, this is nothing new, but one of the striking things in the 1990, between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s, for example, was not a kind of rearguard, uh, explicitly empiricist rejection of history, of theory or theoretical thinking, but this superficial embrace of theory, which I think all three of us have been struck with and we all live with this kind of domestication of theory as a set of uh, citations or authors or topics or concepts that one studies and can have and be somewhat conversant in and move on to the good old business of doing uh, archival history. So we're not, none of us are against empirical work, none of us are against archival work, but we are uh, dubious about this idea that any question worth answering uh, can be found in an archival box. Uh, so in, in a certain sense, all three of us are concerned with, with the ways in which uh, uh, some of the forces most resistant to non-normative ways of thinking historically are themselves identify, would identify with all kinds of theoretical terms. And in a certain sense, it's that kind of, uh, that that dominant position that at least me and I think the, the three of us uh, kept running up against. The people who are nodding at you while they're holding the door closed rather than, you know, those who are shaking their heads, you know what you're up against and we all know what to do about that. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, I guess then to, to pick up on that last point, if we as a community of scholars who are concerned with these questions and have these stakes in mind are to do this kind of history properly, how do we begin? Which is to say, what are the implications for training and teaching that you see coming out of a, a, a document and a statement like this? Because a lot of the folks who listen to our podcast or who read the blog are graduate students like myself, people who are thinking very hard about how to write their dissertations, how to teach undergraduates. 
um, and how to become scholars as part of this this very particular kind of training. And a lot of what runs through what you folks wrote is is about the sort of discipline and punish piece of how we're trained. Um, so keeping in mind everything that, that you just laid out for us, how do we teach one another and how do we teach graduate students knowing that these are the stakes of this conversation? I, whoever would like to jump in, feel free. You want to go ahead, Ethan? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, go, I, go ahead, Don. You, you started it. I'll, I'll follow your lead. I would say, did, did you send me the, um, the syllabus from the introductory se uh, graduate seminar in, at, at Princeton? Yes, I did. And I would say that was a good example of what you're talking about. Um, that is, it looked not at um, models, methodological models, or thematic topical models, but at critical work that was engaged with theoretical at the same time as empirical questions. Um, and and I was I was really impressed by that. Uh, I'm sure there are criticisms we would we might want to make of it, or you guys as graduate students might want to make of it. But it does does seem to me that it it explored the terrain of um, the deconstructive Marxist uh, psychoanalytic, you know, name the other approaches that are in those books that were that were being assigned. And so the whole of that introductory graduate seminar is self-reflexive in the way in which. Um, Ethan and Gary have been have been talking about it. That is, what does it mean to do this kind of history in this way? Um, that to me would be would be the way to do it. And um, clearly, the, uh, another possibility would be to have as a serious part of graduate training a seminar in theory, um, which graduate students didn't just sort of read one book of Foucault, but read a body of materials that introduce them to the range of possibilities and the seriousness with which those approaches to history uh, could be entertained or could be could be used. So that would be my, my way, I think, of doing it. Can I add on to that? Because I, I mean, I think, I, I've seen that syllabus too, and it, it's a very impressive syllabus, and I think it shows the um, both the promise and the problem, because you, you see in that uh, instantiation the sort of uh, work that can be done with graduate students, uh, some really interesting approaches. Uh, this is, I think, exactly the sort of thing that we, we'd like to see happening, but it's also the case that it's just ad hoc. It really just depends in your graduate program whether you and you're in that particular class that gets the particular professor that might be interested in these sorts of problems, and then you may end up getting it on a certain syllabus. But it's not institutionalized, and you can't uh, rely on this. And people are not hired to teach theory, and we don't, for the most part, have institutionalized theory seminars. And so you're sort of less, le le it's left to the fates whether or not you or any other graduate student is going to be, get it or whether it's going to show up for the class after them. So, so one thing that we really would like to see, and it's hard for us from our positions to be able to, to do anything except for try to advocate for it, is to see these um, sorts of syllabi uh, concerns to be institutionalized, to have the graduate programs training historians to take it seriously. Like, you know, you may be a practical physicist, but I would hope in your graduate training you've learned something about theoretical physics. Uh, you, could, you could imagine that as a model. 
but but I'd say absent that, because I'm not especially optimistic that the, the that this change is going to happen anytime soon. But but we did run um, a seminar for theory of history at Bielefeld University that was open to graduate students last summer, and we're looking to continue offering. Uh, such uh, 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 summer institutes in theory of history for graduate students who want to come in the future. And I, I mean, I have to say, this, the, the, the students who came, the graduate students who came, who were from all over the world, were really starved to think through this sort of work, to imagine how it applies to their work, to imagine how they could do it. But as you said, maybe this is the next part we could talk about. They're also quite afraid of what's going to happen to them if they actually reveal themselves as theorists in their dissertations, in their grant proposals, in their presentations to their graduate departments, that somehow they are going to be punished for this. Right. So it's palpable. And so so it's the creating the space that, 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 that we're about. And it's a, it's a difficult negotiation. I think for graduate students, it does take a, a, a large amount of bravery to can say, I, I'm going to do it. Yeah, go, Gary. <laughs> can I say something about this? I mean, picking up from there in terms of the, you know, it, 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 even though we said discipline and punish, and that certainly in, in some ways is the, uh, you know, we, we feel that. But it is, as I said, uh, again, I'll use this word, it is more insidious. It's more about a system of rewards and a system of incentives. And in your question, Disha, you said something about proper history. And, and I don't think in our manifesto, in our theses, we are in any sense trying to lay out an idea of what proper history is. For me, on the contrary, uh, I am much more concerned with you know the powerful ways in which all of these aspects, these institutional and systemic aspects of the profession implicitly uh, posit what a proper history is. So in certain way, the battle is really to create space. Uh, there will always be conventional historians. There will always be narrative historians. There will always be empiricist historians. Uh, I don't think we want to, uh, you know, to certainly we, 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 we would like the whole field to be more kind of uh, uh, self-reflexive and mindful about how they know and what they, how they know what they know and the, the history of the concepts they we all use and what's at stake, et cetera. But at the very least, we want to create that space. Ethan was just mentioning uh, to and, and and to challenge the assumptions of what proper history are and and training is one of you know a a, a set of kind of uh, nodes or or sites where this takes place. Hiring, promotion, journal publication, uh, uh, you know, conferences, uh, and, and training. So I know you as a graduate student, training is an especially important thing, but in, in, in a certain sense, uh, the idea. So when we go to training, if we just look, part of what we say is look, it's fine for students to learn how to do archival research, but it is a little strange that the that the assumption that the best way to train doctoral students is to, on the one hand, give them some historiography seminars of what's been done very recently in their time and place that they're studying, and B, have them just like, go, write a publishable paper, go into the archives right away, find some materials and, and, and do it, and that by doing it, you know how to do it. Now, I'm also in anthropology, and every serious doctoral program in the country 
and I, I, I can criticize anthropological training also, but it's absolutely foundational that every anthropology student has to learn about the history of the discipline, not for canon form. I mean, in part, it, 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 that too has its normalizing function, but there's something very valuable about thinking of the, his, the history, the kind of political institutional history of the formation of the field and the history of the paradigms that have been used, debated, uh, pushed against, uh, developed in order to, uh, in order to, you know, that, that, that forms the kind of, uh, uh, epistemological unconscious of the field. And it has always struck me that historians, supposedly a field interested in the past, uh, rarely thinks it's crucial for students to have a deep understanding of, uh, you know, 18th or 19th century history or historiography. Uh, that's not the only kind of kind of theory we're interested. You know, in part, it's theory of history, as Ethan's talking about. In part, if historians are studying social relations and social change, uh, one would think they would need as deep want that they would want as deep and nuanced an understanding of the many different ways uh, that thinkers from all different fields have theoretically uh, reflected on uh, social relations, social processes, and social changes. Sorry, Joan. But that kind of, um, but that kind of course, I mean, I, that was the kind of course we had in graduate school when I was there, and we read Thucydides, and we read this, this, and we read that, and it was utterly untheoretical. So huh. it, it takes, um, it, it takes a conceptualization of right. um, the the notion of the the sort of the stakes, the epistemological stakes, to make a course like that work. Otherwise, we're just going back to. I mean, what we learned in in those graduate seminars was, as I said, Thucydides to whatever, and then um, we learned how to take notes on. Um, now it's it's uh, obsolete, but on index cards, what size index card we were so, just supposed to use. That was the methodological uh, training that that we got. I mean, really, it was it was from the point of view now it was primitive, but but I think so. It's not enough. It's not the the history of the discipline, but maybe we could call it the critical history of the discipline, so that we had some sense of of the relationship of what was being produced as history to the 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 aims of uh, those historians who were producing it, or what what becomes normative. Uh, is is subject to a kind of critical engagement rather than simply a laying out of of you know what what counts as history from the Greeks to 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 the present. Um, I think it's really important to to sort of emphasize that. What I was going to say though is that I think also the the exposure to theory, and I was thinking of the Bielefeld example, Ethan. Um, I taught a, a graduate course at Rutgers for a number of years that was not part of the history department's program. It was in the history department. So I could do anything I wanted, and we always did theory. Uh, one year we just read psychoanalytic theory. One year we did something else. You know, it was that. And the students in that program, um, the, the, the way they problematized the subject that they eventually worked on was very different from the sort of standard way of doing things. So exactly. the exposure to theory led them to ask questions in a new and different way. It didn't um, drive them from the archives necessarily. It didn't um, um, foreclose the possibility of, of empirical engagement, but the problematizing of their theses 
was an entirely different exercise from what the standard things was. And then, you know, it's what we've been talking about. It was then that they ran into trouble, um, you know, that an advisor would say, you'll never get a job if you do this. Um, and so, but, but the, the good side of that was the excitement that they brought to the topics that they then turned into um, dissertations in the, in the field of history. And the, the real question that some, or the real challenge, as, as I was suggesting before, is how, uh, uh, you know, how, how we as historians, our students, our colleagues uh, can ask questions and do work that non-specialists or non-historians feel challenged by, nourished by, pushed by. Uh, troubled by in ways that are generative and there uh, there does I, I have to believe as Joan was just suggesting that 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 there is some kind of correlation between um, between a kind of more descriptive more empiricist uh, training and practice and a kind of work that speaks to other people interested in information not other people asking uh, questions. And I think that's the, you know, and, and, and this is a moment when historians should and, and, and need to uh, not just be offering information, but to be thinking critically about everything, the relationship between how we know and the kind of uh, uh, the social relations we're living in under, uh, the social arrangements we're confronted with between uh, the, you know, the past and the present, between present and the future, uh, this seems to be a very important time for uh, all scholars to be thinking about what matters about their work. And, and, and the point isn't that there aren't a lot of amazing individual historians who do work that matter, do, do work that does matter. There are many, but we're talking about tendencies and reward structures and norms within the field that can offer amazing rewards to work that doesn't, in a certain way, need need to be, that doesn't justify itself in these ways, that doesn't speak across these uh, fields and divides, whether it's the divide between history and other fields, or the divide between the university and the, you know, the world. I mean, I'd go so far as to say, I mean, to, to, to this point of trying to make history open up and outward as opposed to close in to increase specialization is that the, 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 the attunement to theory actually is a sort of a meta language that can be read and understood across disciplines and approaches because it lays bare uh, many of the claims, the assumptions, the structures of power at work. And those are not uh, uh, of concern just to historians who want right. to know, uh, you know, the, the archival AB box, but actually to how these structures of power work in these different ways. And that is an opening for conversation across disciplines about how they see these working. So there, there really is a chance to open things up in interesting and new ways uh, that, that doesn't seem to take place when you're just in the realm of expertise uh, and uh, the, the pointing to the box that shows where all of the well, the authority of the scholarship lies. So, so it's that gesture toward the opening that we're really pointing toward and hoping. Uh, and I think many younger scholars certainly want this. It's a, it's again, it's a question of making a space for it. How to make the space? Where to make the space? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Right, in a certain way. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say in a certain way, uh, even though the theses seem directed at, at power and institutions and structures and, and uh, you know, the kind of hegemonic structures, which it certainly, they certainly are in a certain sense, I would say we're also writing to you, writing to young scholars, writing to graduate students to try to say, be bold. And, you know, I know that, it could, you know, when I was a graduate student, it was very lonely in a certain sense to feel like, am I crazy? I was inspired by all this work. I'm trying to do this other work. I'm reading these other people. I'm in dialogue with all of these people. And then I go to the conference or I submit the journal article or I sit in a seminar and, you know, there seems to be this big disconnect, especially with people saying you can't do this or you won't get that job. And in a certain way, creating the space is about uh, those of us with a little more privilege and security need to be able to, uh, you know, to kind of uh, question the structures that exist. But we're also trying to encourage younger scholars and say, look, um, you know, if your intuition is that you want to be doing uh, something like this and you're being told uh, you better not, um, you know, try to be brave and we need to uh, gather more senior people to support younger people and uh, try to affirm this stuff. Yeah, we want to be like the blockers and we want <laughs> students to be the running backs. <laughs> you guys go. We just want to throw a block yes. <laughs> So, Tisha, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very encouraging. Uh, and I, I appreciate your pitching it that way. I guess I'm left with the question especially because there were so many threads in, in what you folks just said about, on the one hand, the implication of all of this being the need to create a certain kind of community and certain kinds of both institutional as well as, shall we say, epistemic supports for people to do this kind of work. Um, and then this pressure or this kind of social phenomenon that at every single party or cocktail thing you go to, people are always talking about the job market and the stats and things like that. But, but the, particular piece of that being that we may be employed and it's very likely that we'll be employed in very different kinds of places than the places that some of us have gone have gone and gotten our training or some of the people listening to this may be at places with a different funding structure or a very very different funding structure where their support their pay depends on teaching many 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 undergraduates the kinds of things that the, the the theses are critiquing, which is to say a set of kind of empirical narratives about, for instance, the American past. So if that's what we're being called upon to ultimately do, and these are kind of where our intellectual and community-based callings lie, can you talk a little bit to how we might go about keeping that institutional structure in mind, as well as making the kinds of choices that we're, we're calling brave in this context, but I, I, I wonder if, if other folks would, would see it that way rather than see it as simply f foolhardy. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, harsh, the harsher question at, sure. at the base of all of this. Think, I'm sorry, why, why do you think that teaching, let's say, a course in American history requires you to do the standard narrative? Um, why can't it be a, a study of the way in which um, slavery and democracy are entwined together from the beginning and and the story then gets told uh, in in those sorts of ways 
Um, I mean, I, I don't see how, in a, in a way, it seems to me almost easier uh, in, a, in a course to introduce a kind of critical, you don't have to teach them Foucault to do Foucauldian readings. Um, you don't have to teach them Derrida to deconstruct certain notions of what the standard narrative of, of history actually is. So it, it, it seems to me that um, in a way it's easier in, in teaching where it's your classroom um, and where you're not subjected to um, a, a, a sort of departmental um, um, oversight in quite the same way than it would be to write a dissertation that was self-reflective and, and, and bet in which theory was, was driving the set of questions that you're asking. Right. I mean, I'm not suggesting that it would be impossible to teach that kind of course. I'm, I guess, putting on the table or letting some of the maybe critics of this kind of project speak through me for a moment uh, and ask about the very precise kinds of choices that I know you see your graduate students having to make, thinking outside of the kinds of institutions where you folks are employed at these kinds of longer term decisions that people are always called upon to make, even as they may want to pursue the kind of yeah. research agenda that you folks have laid out. I guess I'm not really asking for advice, really. I'm more asking if well, you folks can help us think through this really complicated yeah. nexus. I mean, this is something that came up uh, during the Summer Institute, because this was a, a common um, concern and a valid concern. And, and, a, and a valid concern when you're going into job interviews, uh, when you've got your first course, when you've got uh, review committees. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things at stake and a worry about a knee-jerk reaction against uh, having sort of an explicitly Foucauldian structure to a course. You know, and, it, and it's going to sound um, strange, but a, but a lot of it is in the ability to, and this, the onus is on, on all of you, that it's the ability to, to sort of convince within the structure of the argument itself that allows for both this critical apparatus to be at play while at the same time putting out there, and this is, is the hard part, it's, it's a double burden. You really have to uh, credential yourself in the way that's legible to those people working uh, in a more conventional way in order to deploy the critique. And it's, it's I'm not, I wouldn't say that it's an easy task, but, but I would say that that's the strategy. Uh, and the strategy may at times involve, I hate to say it, depending on where you are in your status and who you're interviewing with, um, concealing the critique within, you know, various representative or narrative structures in order to smuggle it in. It may involve being uh, heavy-handed in certain kinds of evidence to make them clear in order to drop in another assertion at the end. Uh, but there is a, a, a the, the counsel would be that one has to be deft in these ways, and a lot of it is about learning how to write and argue and lecture so as to convince to convince on both sides of this, that you're credentialed enough that you know how to do the, 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 the more traditional legible work, and then you have to be deft enough to be able to deploy the critique so that becomes obvious as a result of your, of your work. And it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is easy, uh, and it may not be for everyone, but, but I do think that it's doable, and this is, again, why I think there, there needs to be spaces for people to go and really learn how to do this work and think about this work and digest this work and discuss this work so that it, when they go to it, it's not as though it's an appendage 
that stuck on to their dissertation, but actually is seamless part of the way they lecture, the way they do history. So, To, to, to be clear, picking up on that, um, the, it, there's, there, there is risk involved in doing heterodox work. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely risk involved in doing that on the one hand. On the other hand, no one knows the job market. No one knows what five years will be like, what 10 years will be like. Uh, in fact, uh, so often it has proven the case that certainly topically within history, things that were marginalized became the things, you know, eight years later that everyone wanted uh, to hire people doing, uh, whether they were doing good jobs with it or not. And it's also the case, given that radically, uh, you know, the rapidly transforming character of everything, including the university, that we also don't know, you know, the jobs could be in environmental stuff. It could be in next, you know, links between geography and history. It could be, you know, all kinds of new, uh, new articulations between history and something else or the historical dimension of some uh, deep STS project. So in a sense, no one knows. And the, the best way as Pollyanna as this seems, and I know you're not asking for advice, but I am speaking to those who say, you know, you get to do this because you are privileged and I certainly have a wonderful job, but let me tell you, it was an uphill battle in all kinds of ways uh, at, at, at different moments. And there's always luck involved in things working out. But I do believe that things work out in a certain way by A, being your best self, and B, being your best and most peculiar self means doing work that that matters, work that stands out, work that grabs people's attention. And going back to what Joan was saying before, you know, I really don't believe that uh, while it may work in the short term, I really don't believe that trying to do work that fits within the immediately legible boundaries of every uh, journal article we read, doing work that sounds just like the sweet spot of everything else that we kind of like look at and snooze through is the way forward. And as Joan was saying before, some of those students uh, did the most exciting projects. So part of this is to remember that when we say theoretically uh, self, you know, self-aware history, theoretically informed history, we're not talking about name-dropping theorists or writing like Michel Foucault or doing work that names Franz Fanon and Derrida and Judith Butler uh, every third page. We're talking about work that is deeply conceptualized, that is epistemologically self-aware, that is asking deeper and broader questions, and that is making claims about how things work that may not be immediately visible in the archives. And it seems to me that the more theoretically uh, aware you are as a student, and the more you try to do that work in a very serious and not just tacked on way, as Ethan was saying, in your own research, the more people will pay attention to that work and the greater chance you have, in, in a certain sense, the less risky it is. And the fact is, it's all risky. The whole thing is a giant roulette wheel, so you might as well do what you're best at and what you're passionate about and what you, if you do the work that you believe should be in the world, I believe there are people younger and older that will see that and hear that and respond to it. And it's not a given, but it's not a given that if you play it the safest that you'll uh, 
you know, be any less at risk. Rant over. <laughs> that was a very encouraging <laughs> rant as far as rants go. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very satisfied with that. And I think that I will uh, take that to, to heart. And I hope that other folks will as well. Um, I wanted to, to pivot now to something that Professor Scott mentioned, which is the notion of, of critical history. Um, and it appears really prominently in the theses. And I just wanted to read a couple of lines from them and then talk a little bit about what that means to you folks and what you had in mind uh, when you wrote about it. Uh, so uh, 3.8, uh, thesis 3.8 reads, Critical history seeks not only to account for and thereby denaturalize actually existing arrangements. It seeks to challenge the very logic of past and present now and then, here and there, us and them, upon which both disciplinary history and the actual social order largely depend. And the next one. Critical history seeks to intervene in public debates and political struggles. But rather than seek to collaborate with power as specialized experts, it questions the reduction of thinking to scholarship, scholars to specialization, and the very idea of the rule of experts. Critical history aims to understand the existing world in order to question the givens of our present so as to create openings for other possible worlds. So I guess my question is, do these theses have what we might call a politics? And if so, what are they? You just described them. <laughs> that those are, you know, those are, I think, quite open-ended statements. But I think that, especially now, people are looking for maybe a little bit of precision. Could you lay out what what the stakes of that are when we're thinking about not just power inside the academy, but more broadly speaking? What what is that calling on us to to do? Well, I think we probably have different. It's true that we likely have different uh, notions. Right. I would say one thing about these theses is that we don't all agree about everything. There's nothing um, uh, homogenous about it, although there's a lot of zones of agreement. And so so even within it, you, you will find tension. So I'll, I'll say, to, to my mind, the, the, the political stakes of denaturalization are about making it clear, and I think historians are the ones to do this, uh, that... Um, things don't have to be the way they are simply because they're posited as so. In fact, if you look at the nature of historical change, you realize that there are reconfigurations, um, constellation shift, and they're usually through a nexus of power. None of this is neutral. No history is neutral. It's all political. And the whole idea of objectivity uh, is about uh, retreating and absenting oneself, and it's a tacit uh, um, approval or at least um, acknowledgement of the status quo is, is simply good enough. And that's, to my mind, what we want to denaturalize, we want to put in the crosshairs, we want to shake these sorts of suppositions, even suppositions about things that are so taken as given as chronology and temporality. I mean, fundamental notions about the logics of how histories work. Why do we run on a certain methodology that's come out of a certain tradition that then is overwrites other traditions, which we dismiss as myth or story or religion, as opposed to putting them actually into this contestatory 
relationship with one another to decide whether our suppositions, this is to say the guild of history, suppositions actually hold. And, and that's the denaturalizing. And it, I think it is a, a deeply political uh, uh, movement or, or assertion precisely because it doesn't simply rest with academics. It actually is about taking up all sorts of the coordinates by which assertions about how the world should work are made and rattling them and shaking them. And this isn't to fall into a kind of relativism, but again, it's a creating a space and a space, as we say, for other possible worlds, possible pasts, but also possible futures. And so for me, it's, it's, it's politics all the way through in that sense. I would say that also denaturalizing is historicizing. It, it, that is that that in order to denaturalize, we need to uh, take the taken for granted concepts, the common sense um, notions with which we operate, and point out. And this is the sort of Foucauldian <laughs> approach, I think, that they have a history, um, and that they meant different things at different times, and that there's a reason that the concepts we live with and work with now exist in the form that they do and operate in the form that they do. So, so in that sense, uh, historicizing is the way to denaturalize, and that, of course, politicizes um, the project in the present as well as in the discipline. I would, I would absolutely echo that and suggest that, you know, a, 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 a realist epistemology is often based on a realist conception of truth that kind of says that, or that essentially says that research which approximates, gets it right, that names the world as it is, is good research and has produced something uh, more or less true. And the, 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 the counterpart to the historicizing and the denaturalizing is to uh, open the space for imaginative pos political possibilities depend on political imagination and imaginative possibilities. So in part, if we think about critical history as unthinking, unthinking uh, the givens, but also those givens are bound up with a whole set of deeply, you know, uh, you know, automatically assumed assumptions about event and agency and intentionality and causality and context and chronology, uh, assumptions about uh, the way in which a given people, place, culture, consciousness, tradition all go together. So much of the kind of, uh, uh, not just the kind of normative political thinking, but the limited uh, critical thinking of this moment is bound I would say even on the left and in a lot of critical theory is bound by a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of realism. And I think in part uh, uh, what we're calling critical history is about which is about historicizing and denaturalizing is also a crucial step for opening the space for political practices, but also opening the space for the political different political imaginations that will be nourished by those practices and be able to nourish those practices. That's not, you know, so while there's a politics to this intervention, I don't think any of us have the idea that we're going to write these theses and either change the historical profession, let alone, you know, American, uh, American public culture, but that uh, there is 
there must be a place for uh, intellectual work in political uh, in political projects, and that intellectual work has to be uh, deeply conceptualized, not just information. So you know, I think I think it's uh, necessary but not sufficient. That political work that is not uh, uh, thoughtful, self-critical, self-reflexive, and expansive and poetic, right? In part, what we're doing here is not just saying we need to understand the history of these categories, but we're saying let's take seriously a whole set of other ways of apprehending the world that just don't comport with the subject-object uh, norms that are baked into what historians do. We're not suggesting that uh, psychoanalysis or Marxism or deconstruction are the great theories or the master theories. There are all kinds of theories from other political traditions. But what's interesting about these, among others, is the, the attempts to take the non-immediate, the non-evident, the non-visible, the, uh, the, the seemingly non-material very seriously as social forces and historical forces. Uh, you know, M.A. Césaire talked about poetic knowledge as being uh, neither rational nor irrational, but another way of apprehending the world. And in a certain way, when we talk about critical history, we want space to think about the relationship between the past and the present through some of these other modalities that are really disavowed. There just is not space for them. People might say, oh, that's an interesting book. Kristen Ross, David Scott, uh, who, you know, uh, all kinds of, yeah, Susan Buckmore. Fascinating, but that's not history. Just remember that, you know, that's not, don't do that. You can read that, but don't do that. So that's, that's another piece of the critical history idea. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm, I'm left thinking as well, though, when we talk about alternatives, and of course, this is something that I, that I know you folks have thought about, um, th there is the glaring fact that there are a lot of alternatives out there and a lot of people who uh, share the ground of, of theoretical writers or thinkers with us who have very, very different politics. Uh, and people who would, if we want to call it deploy, if we want to call it use, if we want to call it appropriate, uh, the people we read uh, for a very different kinds of a, a very different kind of politics, especially in the context of a university that is so often the battleground for conversations about sexual and racial violence, about so-called free speech, and, and sometimes a, a literal battle, battleground like in Charlottesville. Um, what do we do with that charge that is sometimes levied at those of us who want to to talk theory, so to speak? about the fact that, no, no, this is the time to stick to facts, to stick to truth, because there are people who think that there are lots of other kinds of truth out there. Again, this is not a new conversation, but one that has kind of come back just as your conversation has come back. I guess, how, how do we talk with folks who consider what we're doing just as threatening in some ways? Well, first of all, I would say that we're not arguing a kind of relativist position. We're not arguing that there is no truth. Um, what we're talking about is uh, bringing critical um, perspectives to bear on what counts as truth, uh, 
which is different from saying that there's no no such thing or that there aren't any facts or but I mean it seems to me the argument is that what gets to count as a fact or as a or as truth is deeply political and so one needs to explore how what the process is that produces uh, that kind of, of um, uh, objective notion of a kind of objective reality that can't be criticized or can't or that has to be studied for itself. Uh, so you know, I thought you were going to ask also whether or not it was possible to have to be a conservative and to and to, and to approach uh, history theoretically. And I think it, it is possible. I mean, I think it, it, nobody's arguing that that um, social justice politics are the only politics that would follow from this. Um, right. It, it so so you know those are the two things I think I think I would say. One is that this is not about relativism, and second, it's not about a particular kind of politics. It's about this sort of self-reflective, self-conscious um, um, awareness of the epistemological position that informs. The history that we uh, produce. I mean, I, and I, and I to, to follow on that, uh, you know, th there's a, a subset of questions about uh, people deploying or not deploying. So actually, I, I don't even know that I believe uh, this whole um, theory is somehow responsible for post truth in terms of revisionists, negationists, or even Trump. Because I don't really think they have need for it, nor do I see the logic uh, uh, of their arguments running on it. So we could have one conversation about whether or not uh, theory deployed in good faith uh, could be used on the right and the left, which I think surely one could say it would, and have a different argument or discussion about uh, what's happening now uh, with people who are denying climate change or who are claiming that you know, they're just, there's a perspectivalism and you can pick whichever uh, uh, history you want to do. Often these are done using very bad history uh, and bad practices. Uh, and I think that you can do that with or without uh, postmodern sentiments. Um, you know, Donna Haraway said something um, in a recent article that was about Bruno Latour in the New York Times. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but she said something to the effect that um, it, it's surely a perilous time uh, when we're thinking about the way uh, truth is either taken up or discarded, but it doesn't mean we want to go back to uh, bad or poorly thought and certainly not overly uh, uh, hegemonic notions of truth and science as some sort of uh, panacea and catch-all. Because, you know, to, to go back then strikes me as uh, putting our head in the sand. And to, to take it a step further, often this critique uh, of theory is somehow... Uh, having their eye off the ball at this moment when all these other uh, threats are out there that we need to get back to enlightenment values, we need to get back to democracy, and these sort of broad generalizations of things everyone would agree are good, and in theory we would agree are good, and it seems to forget the way that uh, critical theory's approach to these was to point out that while these were values that were espoused, they were also withheld. And they were withheld from large segments of the population because of class, because of race, because of gender. And so the idea that we would go back to something that's going to save us all by just allowing it to operate on its own terms as some sort of naturalized good strikes me as a, as a very naive position. It takes your mind off the ball. And the ball here being that 
It seems to be true that, or if you want to hear a truth, the truth is that truth claims are very strange, historically contingent things. You know, you, you can claim that the world's heliocentric, but if the world doesn't adhere to that belief at that time, it's not going to matter. That's not what people are going to believe, and it's not how they're going to practice. And so if you're having an argument between climate change deniers and climate change advocates, just pointing to facts and saying, look, they're there, you have to believe them, is never going to win the argument. And right. so this is why I think it's, it, it, we're, we're ill-served by pointing to the postmodernists and finding a boogeyman and bl blaming them. And we'd be much better served by taking these arguments seriously and saying, okay, how do we persuade, how do we convince the world is literally on the line here? We can't just serve up a plate of data and say, look, this is it. You have to believe it. It's no longer convincing. And we yeah. have to find a way to convince. I mean, if you, I agree completely with, with both of what my friends and comrades have said. Uh, if, if your politics starts with uh, the idea that, uh, or arrives at the uh, recognition that liberalism and something like Trumpism are intrinsically related to each other, in many ways are two sides of the same coin, uh, uh, you have to refuse uh, the way in which uh, populism, fascism, Trumpism becomes a form of liberal blackmail that says, you see what's happened, we have to go back. Because actually where we were is exactly what got us here. That's another longer conversation, but I absolutely agree uh, with Ethan that w part of what we see is that uh, the claim to, I mean, I hold on to all kinds of facts, and I agree with both uh, Ethan and uh, and Joan that this is not a relativist uh Argument, and I'm certainly not a relativist. I come at this through Marxism, not post-structuralism. Uh, there's, there's, this is not a. It is anti-foundationalist, but not or a call for anti-foundationalism, but not a call for relativism. And we certainly are in a political moment when the appeals to facts, whether it's the facts of the harms the Trump administration are doing, whether it's the facts of climate change, do not seem to matter. Now, the answer to that is not to just kind of uh, 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 go to, you know, deploy your relativism against their relativism, but to reflect, as all of these different critical traditions invite us to do differently, on the deep relationship between social forms and forms of knowledge. That seems as important as ever before, right? Um, because the appeal to, 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 to the facts uh, while we can never do without the appeal to the facts, they're also uh, not enough. So understanding on all sides the ways in which uh, how we know and what we know is deeply bound up with social relations and social norms seems to be at, at, as urgent as ever before. Just just to add one thing, I think sometimes um, the these the the critique or the notion of critical history. Uh, is, and the, the critique of the discipline is read as a denial of expertise. Um, that is of the expertise that's ordinarily associated with disciplinary adherence to disciplinary orthodox and the certain kinds of training and disciplinary orthodoxy and stuff like that. And, and that's where the, the kind of your question about the denial of truth uh, comes in as well. This is not anti-expertise. What we're talking about are uh, serious mastery of 
certain philosophical ideas, uh, mm-hmm. serious, rigorous inquiry into the grounds on which um, knowledge is produced and, and disseminated and, and accepted and understood. So I think that, that I, just, I just think that, uh, and we're in a situation now in which expertise is being denied. Uh, that is the, the the problem is is not just um, and that anything goes is not just their relativism against our relativism, but the the belief that there are certain um, knowledges that carry with them um, a body of expertise uh, are no longer um, credible credible. Um, we are not in that camp, um, and we are insisting on. Um, the importance of expertise. If, if anything, we're adding um, an additional dimension to the notion that people who write history need to become more expert in the philosophical groundings for the, uh, the, the, the history that they write. Uh, so, so it's not, you know, them against us, their truth against our truth. It's about uh, what counts as legitimacy for the production of knowledge. And we're on the side there of expertise. Right, I, 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 can I add a couple of things to that? One, uh, thinking back for a second, um, um, I, 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 in terms of what we're pushing for, what we're calling for, I think this is, Joan just made a really important point, which is that um, thinking is labor. Conceptualizing, I mean, there's the mastery of these, you know, the kind of engagement with difficult texts and difficult debates and, and, and developing your own relationship to them takes a long time. But also thinking through one's material and developing kind of, uh, kind of abstracting away from the, the, the serious empirical work all three of us do in order to develop a concept or put our dial uh, our, our material in relationship to a concept or in order to enter uh, other conversations that might not seem immediately connected to what we're studying. This is labor. This takes an enormous amount of time and effort and kind of rigor and commitment. And that kind of labor is not usually recognized in the kind of that institutional reward structure we were talking about. It's often seen as, I don't know, cleverness or, oh, you went to Brown as an undergraduate, which I did not do, by the way. Or <laughs> I don't I don't know what it's seen, you know, like as it like the way when writers are seen as good writers, like, oh, that's good style. That's almost de- deceptive or deceiving or a little add on or, well, you have good accessories. You always look good or I don't know what. I, I don't know how to put it. But there's someone, they, uh, someone they, just somehow disavowed as labor uh, and as historical labor, labor for serious historical work. And the only other quick tag I want to put onto what Joan said is about the expertise. And I think she just said some, uh, I, I fully agree about the kind of expertise we're endorsing. And let me also say something about the kind of expertise we're not endorsing, which was, I will be explicit whether my peers want me to or not. In the, those two theses you read, Disha, um, um, partly what we are pushing against is the technocratic idea of expertise right, right. that was embedded in the, the earlier history manifesto uh, that some of you may have read, which is a very different model, which says that those kind of, uh, uh, you know, those mainstream uh, 
liberal democratic uh, policymakers should allow expert historians to whisper policy recommendations into their ear. So we do think this is all about power, but we don't want access to power in that way. And we don't think that kind of instrumentalization of expertise, even for, you know, we're happy if it works for politics we support, but that is not the way for history, I think, to matter in this, you know, this political moment and our public space. Ethan, you were about to say something. You had a story to tell us. I was at a, a symposium and, and I, I went on a rant as, as I just have. And <laughs> response was more or less, well, you know, theory's fun and all. That's great. You know, it's a lot of fun. But, but we, need to get, you know, we need to get to the serious stuff. That, uh, and and exactly. the serious stuff turned out to be precisely the very technocratic stuff. The technocratic stuff with a certain sense that, well, we don't really need theory for that. We'll just figure it out and the market will self-correct and different people will figure out different things at different times. So it was a, it was a, a, a strange moment <laughs> and of course led to another rant. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like our time here is up. I'm just getting a signal from a staff member here. Um, okay. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me about all of this. You've given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure our listeners a lot to think about. And I'm sure there will be a conversation online as the conversation has been going on since May about all of this. Um, and I hope that conversation continues. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Your questions were really terrific. So thanks. And, and this is a, just the kind of uh, space we wanted to open. So we appreciate you picking up whether you agree with any of it or none of it. It's terrific <laughs> to, to pick up the challenge uh, in order to uh, open up and extend the conversation. That is really the spirit in which we, we wrote these. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well done. Dear your